Oh, Father, your word is not our agenda. It's not one we have created. Your word is not our revelation. Lord, it is a revelation of your truth. Preserved down the ages, we can open the pages. And then, Lord, if you grant us your Holy Spirit, suddenly, Lord, you can make these pages live uh, in our hearts. And we pray, Lord, that this will be true this morning. Each one of us, whether we be believers or haven't yet come to faith, Lord, will uh, have you speak to us and enable us uh, to see the significance of this story uh, for our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I've called this uh, uh, sermon the Christmas Quest. Why? Well, we were looking at these uh, fellows who traveled hundreds of miles on a quest. Um, now, they, they said they came to find the person who was born the king of the Jews. And actually, many people have embarked on a, a quest, actually, for the truth about what life is about. You see, they realized, being men of a certain wisdom uh, and a certain background, that the world was desperately in need of the Messiah. I'll explain why I believe that they, they actually were thinking of the King of Jews as the Messiah in a minute. But they believed that they were on a quest, hun coming hundreds of miles, on a dangerous journey, to a dangerous country with a dangerous king, to find this, this one. And uh, I want to point out this for those of us who are believers and those who haven't yet come to faith, that we are actually on a quest in this life. We are on a quest day by day to live the truth. Uh, we're on a, a, a quest, in, in the case of people who haven't yet come to, to faith, to actually find the truth in Jesus Christ. But those of us who have, are believers are on a quest, we're on a pilgrimage through this life, day by day, to know Christ better. Uh, to know his power, his presence, his life in our lives. And we, we, we kind of sang it in a, a carol a minute ago, didn't we, about Christ being born in us. Well, of course, when we first become believers, Christ does, does come to dwell in us then. But as Paul says in Ephesians, we're to learn to be rooted and grounded in him, to be anchored in Christ, and the life of Christ to be discovered in us day by day. And sometimes that isn't happening. And one of the things I think that the Christmas story can suggest to us is the importance of us being prepared to put exactly the same energy and concentration and the thrill of it all of, of actually knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection, just as these, uh, these men discovered the thrill of finding Christ for the first time. And I would say to anybody who hasn't yet come to Christ that indeed a life awaits you of, of wonder ain't going to be happy all the time. It's not going to be necessarily, you know, there'll be times that you might go through great difficulties, great sorrows, great uh, people being really nasty to you. But a life of joy and peace, which is worth being on a quest for, and of course, is worth devoting your life to. To know the meaning of our lives, the forgiveness of our, our many failures and sins. To be given eternal life. And to have all of the, 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 the horror of this world's wickedness and all of the terrors of, 
of what, what it can be like living in this world, no longer to have those as a terrible, uh, depressing weight upon us, but to know that we're under the, under the loving care of our Heavenly Father and we've been born into his family. Now, could I just talk a bit about these, uh, these, these men from the historical point of view, which I said I was going to do. Now, they're called wise men here, but the, the name for them was, was Magi. Uh, and uh, it's from the word which we get magician, actually. Uh, people who, who, who are both fake uh, miraculous uh, uh, powers, but also people who, who display, perhaps have displayed some kind of occultic power in the past. But the word magi is much wider than just the fake counterfeit uh, uh, charlatans who make money out of, of displaying their powers. Uh, in fact, one of those guys is mentioned in the Acts of the Apostles. His name was Simon Barmagus, and he claimed to be a great power, a great, uh, and have the great occultic powers. Uh, but he was a charlatan, and he was a wicked man. These men were not of that variety. And we need to actually know a bit of history of the ancient Near East to understand what the word magi covered, because it covered an awful lot of different kinds of people. You see... We know that 3,000 years before Christ, the Sumerian civilization, which was a great civilization spread over Iraq and, uh, and, and parts of Iran, was a, a civilization of great sophistication. They had insurance companies. Uh, and uh, they had uh, economies that, that, that worked with very intelligent people running them. They were, uh, uh, had great engineering works. They, they pioneered a canal system that brought fertility to a wasteland. Uh, the Sumerians had extensive libraries. Of course, they, their libraries consisted in very heavy books, uh, you know, made of, made, of, uh, made of clay tablets and, and, and so on. But actually, these libraries were studied... Um, they had the equivalent, I suppose, of universities or academies, not exactly the same organization as we have, but they had large groups of men who passed down their knowledge, who learnt from the, the wisdom of the ages in their books, particularly one of the areas which uh, we discovered, modern archaeologists have discovered, that in the Babylonian area there was a great uh, understanding of the, the planetary motions. Uh, they had astronomers... Uh, who observed and, co and collated information, very extensive information, about eclipses, about conjunctions of planets, about planetary, planetary motions. Now, this was mixed up with, in many cases, with astrology. But actually, they had an interest, we might call it a scientific interest, in the observable physical world, and they collated this information. And this was passed down not just over centuries, but over thousands of years. Now, we meet other magi mentioned in the book of Daniel. And uh, they had, uh, we're told that when the Israelites were, were put into exile in Babylon, some of their brightest and best young men were trained and brought into this group of wise men, as it's called uh, here in the uh, English Standard Version, and had association with and learnt from the magi. Um, now, again, in the book of Daniel, we, we also detect that these men, some of them were involved with occultic foretelling of the future, the interpretation of dreams, and so on and so forth. Um, but what we need to understand is this particular group of men that we meet here clearly not only had perhaps uh, an interest in astrology, which they may have done, 
Uh, and they may have recognized this particular um, thing that they've been observing, this star formation they've been observing, had significance for the Jewish people. But clearly they'd also been in contact with Jewish influence. Daniel and all of, in fact, all of the Jews who were in, in Babylon, no doubt had discussed extensively with people um, uh, the Bible and probably, uh, probably uh, Jewish scriptures had, were resting in the archives of the Babylonian universities and academies. Because, you see, these men came on a, a long journey to worship him who was born king of the Jews. And we, you know, you read some commentators, oh, well, they, they were just coming to, they, they just came because an astrological sign said there was going to be a king of the Jews, and so they were going to come along just like, you know, they might, someone might have said there was an astrological sign that Charles was going to be crowned, you know, uh, in 2023. So we come on a journey from Australia to see a king crowned, because it was interesting, and we wanted to show respect. That is balderdash, of course, because the, the king of the Jews was a completely non-title uh, in, in, uh, in this particular uh, era that we lived in, in politically. The Roman Empire controlled vast numbers of kingdoms. And although under Solomon, a thousand years, 900 years before this, uh, Israel had been a mini superpower in the Middle East, um, Soon after Solomon had died, uh, Israel split, and then it was ravaged on succession after century after century by uh, civil wars, then wars, conquerors, the Persians, the Greeks, and finally the Romans um, uh, in, in control of this very small little territory, not, much, not that much bigger than Wales. Um, and it was considered to be a poor province in, in, uh, uh, and the place... Uh, uh, was not considered much significance apart from the strategic significance which it had as the crossroads between Africa, uh, Europe, and Asia. And the Romans really wanted strategic places. So strategically it was important, but the idea they were going to come to, to see the king of the Jews was irrelevant, actually. It was also irrelevant because they came and there was a king there already. And this king was a psychopath. And he was a paranoid psychopath. He always thought people were plotting against him. Following the story of Herod the Great, this man that was mentioned, we know from historical documents, from a very early age, he was a, a, a mixture between Jack the Lad and Jack the Ripper. He uh, wheeled and dealed in the ancient world with the Romans to try to get himself to the position of power. And along the way, there were lots of trail of corpses left along the way, of people that got in his way, of being in, in his little kingdom, which he was so important to him, but as I said, wasn't really important to the Romans, apart from it being a, strate a, strategic, a strategically important plot of land. Now, they came all of this way, not to worship simply a, a human king like, like Herod, and place themselves in danger by actually coming to him and saying that we're looking for the newborn king of the Jews. They, um, they, they came because this king of the Jews clearly was to be the Messiah. And in the Old Testament, and indeed we know from ancient documents also, the wider world believed that there might be a Messiah, a king that would bring peace and prosperity to the whole world. That's, so when we actually uh, go back to the text, it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? 
For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. The thing is this. These men came from totally different nations, from Jewish nations. And this tells us something about the nature of being a Christian. In this room, dozens of, dozens of different nations and races represented. In fact, actually, I, think, I find it really weird that people talk about um, white race, black races. And all. No, there's the human race. That's what we all belong to. There's different varieties of us that are human beings. Short, tall, fat, in my case, thin, uh, uh, you know, uh, darker skin, lighter skin, different hair textures. Uh, it was reckoned by a scientist a few years ago that, uh, that the number of, of chromosomes, the DNA chromosomes uh, uh, in our DNA, that identify us as black or white amount to just a few dozen. Just a few dozen out of the thousands of chromosomes that we have that define other things about our intestines, our skin, our, our, um, our uh, inward workings and what we look on the outside. Actually, all human beings belong to the same family. And this is one of the messages, of course, about these three people who came from a far-off country. They weren't Jews, but they were seeking the one who came to bring a life to the whole world. And uh, it is, you know, we may say that some people make race to get in the way of them coming to Christ. You know, they, they oh, you know, uh, it's a black thing, or it's a white thing, or it's this thing, or that thing. No, Christ came to give life to the whole world. Whatever background you're from, whatever race you are, well, I've used the wrong word, whatever, whatever background, whatever family background you're from, Christ has come to save us. And we note that uh, the first witnesses of Jesus were, were not celebrities or influential or rich or not even these wise men. The first people that came to see him were shepherds. They were the first ones to actually be introduced to Christ were poor men. And again, how wonderful it is, it doesn't matter really what you, know, what you, what you feel like. You may feel really unworthy. You may feel, I'm not, uh, I, I'm not a religious person. You might feel, I'm, you know, I don't belong amongst uh, religious people, but actually the gospel is for you. It is for all people. Um, now, we note this, that... Um, the Messiah, the king of the Jews that was born, was the great hope, hope of the nations. And they came seeking Christ. They came seeking Christ and they were sincere. They were prepared to put themselves out. They planned their journey. It may have, since the star first appeared, it may have been two years. I mean, Herod being the cunning, uh, the cunning plotter that he was, uh, wisdom in the passage and it says he, he, uh, he asked them, he ascertained when did it actually appear because he wanted to know um, get a profile of how old this child was because he, he immediately wanted to murder this child, that was his plan immediately from the, the moment he met, uh, he met these wise men he was insincere he always had other motives, he was interested in his own preservation of his own position, he wanted the, the splendor and glory of his kingly power. He didn't want to worship Christ. Now actually, you know, even today in the church you do find people, you find even preachers and you find pastors who sometimes appear to have abandoned the, the simple service of Christ for the glory and splendor of, of, of uh, celebrity and money and so on. It does happen. 
If you are seeking Christ, forget everything that the world is offering and seek him for his own sake. You must uh, be sincere and you must be prepared to actually change your life. These men left, presumably, fairly comfortable, uh, comfortable positions in the places where they came from. And they were prepared to make a long and arduous journey over periods of months. Um, they changed the framework of their whole life. They left their families. They left their, their, their comfortable home in which they li lived, their home customs uh, and their home language. And they came to a, a place with a, a foreign language and a, and a totally foreign environment. And they entered into uh, this quest for Christ. Now, you know, if you are wanting to become a Christian, you've got to accept that you, you don't just kind of like um, just float into the kingdom of God. Jesus said that it's only through a spiritually violent change within you, spiritually violent, not physically violent, but inside your own mind and heart, a real earthquake, a real eruption of new life and a casting out of the old life that you can become a Christian. The Bible talks about repentance and faith, and repentance is an earthquake because repentance is a change of mind, a complete change of mind to the things where you're breaking God's law and you're prepared to, to say to God, Lord, I'm prepared to leave those behind. Repentance is not actually accomplishing holiness. It doesn't, it, the Bible doesn't say, oh, wait till you're perfect, then follow Jesus. No. But what you do is you come to the Lord and you just confess all your failures honestly before him. And you say, Lord, I'm prepared to go where you go. I will go. Help me, please, to be holy. And the holiness that will be coming into your life will be coming day by day into the future. And when you fail, you'll come back to him and ask for it. So if you want to become a Christian to, uh, this morning, don't say, oh, well, I can't do it. I'll, I'll wait for a few months till I'm a better person. No, you come to him now. You change the direction of your life now. But be prepared for the cost. Jesus said, if anybody would come after me, if anybody comes on that quest of following Jesus, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And understand that once you put your hand to the, to the plow, farming the kingdom of God in your life, there may be trouble ahead. Your friends may make fun of you. Even your family may be very angry with you. There may be all kinds of things that will happen that will make it difficult for you to be a Christian. The devil exists and he will use all kinds of, of schemes and plans to try to divert you from following Christ. But if you sincerely wish to follow Christ, then indeed trust in him. Now, I also want you to know that we see in the text that Christianity is not based on some kind of insane emotional storm, but on a rational quest for truth. Now, if we look at the text, we see that Herod, being a, a, a rational psychopath, a person that, that uh, worked things out in his mind, uh, when he discovered that these men claimed that, they were, that the Messiah was going to be coming, the king of the Jews that brought salvation was going to be coming, he then asked his own wise men, his own scribes and chief priests. And uh, we read uh, in verse um, 4, assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophets, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, 
are by no means least among the, the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now notice, he called for people to be gathered. Well, what is the evidence here that there is going to be this king of the Jews, this Messiah? And they gave him, they gave him the information based upon a rational search. Now, I would again say to any of you who are thinking about becoming a Christian, there may be someone online that's just switched on, you know, uh, and uh, um, calls himself an atheist. Well, I'd just say to you uh, that becoming a Christian is not a matter of blindly diving into a lake of fire. <laughs> not at all. It is being prepared to look at the rational evidence that God has given. There is, there is rational existence of a creator. That's why the majority of scientists uh, believe in God, um, um, on the statistics from two or three years ago in America, there was a simple majority of scientists, of the hundreds of thousands of scientists working uh, in ordinary jobs, in, the majority believe in God. Well, that's one pointer to its rationality. They can't, you know, you wouldn't have thought there'd be that many hundreds of thousands of insane nutters um, uh, who are believing in God, uh, who, who were scientifically trained. But actually, if you look at the Nobel Prize-winning scientists of the past hundred years, the vast majority, 90% of the greatest scientists, have all believed in God, uh, which again points to the fact of, uh, that there's good rational evidence. Yes, we can consider that both there is a God, and secondly, there's plenty of evidence that actually the Bible is true. So, if there, as I said, if anybody is thinking, well, yeah, maybe, maybe I will look into this. Well, look into it, and you'll find plenty of evidence. But the next thing I want to note is this, that actually Herod was given the, a description of the nature of this kingship. It says, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The king who was to come was going to be a shepherd, not a butcher. Herod murdered and massacred people, uh, you know, without a qualm of conscience. As long as he survived, he didn't mind. He not only killed uh, people in his way in terms of, you know, politicians and others, he actually uh, had his own wife murdered in a fit of suspicion about that maybe she was involved in some kind of plot. The woman that he'd actually left another woman for uh, and was madly in love with her, supposedly, uh, but then uh, in a fit of anger had her, had her executed and then spent months afterwards moaning the fact, oh no, she's dead, the one I loved, and so on. The man, totally self-centered, he butchered most of her family. He had most of her family killed. His in-laws were being were killed because um, he he married this uh, woman that he was in love with called Mariam because she was she was of the um, the priest high priestly family, a very elite uh, family with long uh, long heritage in Israel, and. Not only, as I said, did he, did he have her killed, but before even she was dead, there have been many of her relatives, cousins, brothers, who he'd also had executed. He was a butcher. When he was dying in great agony and great pain, with, with, with a, probably some kind of cancer, he ordered that the, the, the most notable citizens in the, the towns of Israel shall all be assembled in a town near Jericho, and the moment he died, they should all be killed. And that way, there would be no rejoicing in Israel 
at his death because he knew that the people of Israel hated him. He was a butcher. But look, Jesus Christ is the exact opposite. Everything that we most despise and fear in people like Stalin and Hitler and Pol Pot and all of the other brutal dictators that have been going down the, the centuries and are still around today, the exact opposite. A king of love, someone who wants to tenderly care for you through the whole of your life. When you're born, he's, he's there, and you, may not, and you may have been a kid, not known Jesus. It may have been you only became a Christian when you were 20. Well, you might become a Christian when you're 30. You might even have become a Christian when you were 70. But he becomes your shepherd that takes you right the way through your life and right the way through death itself. He's the shepherd of Israel. And he's the shepherd. He's your shepherd. The Lord is your shepherd and you shall not want. He makes you to lie down in green pastures. And though you pass through the valley of the shadow of death, you will fear no evil if you trust him. How wonderful this is. And uh, the thing is that these, uh, these uh, wise men, when they uh, made their way to Bethlehem, they'd, they'd, been, they'd had their, their miraculous guidance for, for, from a, some kind of astronomical phenomenon. And they were given a guidance, no doubt, by the Holy Spirit to understand the meaning both of that and also of the scriptures they'd been reading. They then, we're told, when they actually... Uh, came to the place where Jesus was, they were, they were you know, really, really joyful. Um, it says that, in fact, when they um, uh, had had their interview with um, Herod, uh, they then kind of went on their quest to Bethlehem, and they had directions of how to get there. It wasn't very far from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. But when, when they actually came out, if you like, into, into the open air, the clouds cleared and they could see, again, that, that astronomical phenomenon, the star that was actually in the direct, direct direction that they were traveling, down that road, down to Bethlehem. And it says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy because they knew that they were on their way to, to, to salvation, if, if you like, for themselves. And they knew that this was the way um, for the hope of the world to be born. And uh, I just want to say this. This is what Christian, Christians should be thinking about at Christmas time. Well, I mean, uh, it's all of the, the things about Christmas, the Christmas trees and, the, and, the, uh, and the, the, the Christmas meal and all of these things, they have their place. Of course they do. They're, they're part of the cheerful, uh, cheerfulness of, of Christmas. But... The central thing of the, of the story of Christmas is the story of Jesus. Now, if you are a Christian, this morning, not just because it's Christmas Eve, but because it's today, <laughs> have you got that joy in knowing that Jesus is your saviour? Well, rejoice and be glad that you are uh, with him. He is with us uh, this morning. You have the joy of your sins forgiven. You have the joy of peace with God. You've got the joy of knowing the love of God practically in your life today. And you've got the joy of fellowship amongst other Christians. I, I want to finish on this, this point. The, the kings came and they had symbolic gifts that they gave um, to, um, to Mary <laughs> to hold 
uh, obviously, for the baby Jesus as he was, uh, as he was growing up. Now, when they actually came uh, to see him, um, he, he wasn't in a stable. Um, our nativity plays that we have in uh, primary schools so always have a whole bunch of people, the shepherds and the wise men and the angels all gathered together in the same place. Well, of course, here it's actually, it doesn't mention a stable or the shed. Um, presumably this was some days after. It might have been some weeks or months after uh, the actual uh, revelation to the, to the shepherds of, um, of uh, the, uh, of the uh, coming of Christ. Um, uh, and the, it's, it just talks about the place they were staying. It doesn't actually mention a manger or it doesn't mention the stable. It just talks about the place where they were staying. Um, and uh, it says going into the house, not going into the stable, not going into you know, a, 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 um, the traditional uh, place where people think it could have been a cave where Jesus was actually originally born. Um, going into the house... They saw the child with Mary, his mother. They didn't see the child in a manger. The child was with his mum. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts. Now, I want us to notice that the gifts they offered um, were precious. They were, you know, they were expensive. They were beyond the means of a, of a, you know, a poor person in, in Israel. But there's, a, there's something about the, the, these, uh, these um, things that they're, they're not, uh, frankincense and myrrh are not kind of things that um, were produced in, in a great amount in Israel. They were produced in, in, in large quantities actually in Arabia, which may have been one of the places that uh, the kings had come from if it wasn't, if it wasn't the Babylonian area. Um, I might put it like this. They were samples of their treasures from back home. It was a sam- sample of their homeland. It was a bit of their total self. It was like, you know, I go to Italy and I'll, supposing I was to go to Italy and I was to bring back a, a, a piece of, uh, a piece of uh, specially created china that they specialize in, in Sicily, uh, this particular kind of things. And you can recognize it as being Sicilian china. Um, and uh, they were bringing part of themselves. And that's just a symbol, and maybe this is just a fancy on my part, but the thing is this, is that when you become a Christian, you are offering yourself, your secret self. You're not just offering the the outward display, but really the person you are. You bring the person you are, your really sinful self, and you ask, Lord, please cleanse me. But you also ask him to take you as you are. You may be a housewife or a retired person. You might be a, uh, a student or a teacher. You might work in a factory or work as a farmer. But you are bringing the person that you are and you're saying, Lord, take the person that I am and use me, whether I'm a farmer or a, or a factory worker, whether I'm a housewife or a mother, whether I'm a retired person, whoever and whatever I'm doing, Lord, you please take everything that I am that I may live for your glory. Now, one of the things that um, is, though, very, very central to this whole question of, of uh, giving gifts to the Lord is, well, why? What, what, what would trigger us, not just on a quest, but trigger us to want to give everything that we are to him? Well, I want to note, note this, that 
for the, uh, these, these men, it must have been a bizarre place for them to find the Messiah, the King of the Jews. They expected to find him uh, in, maybe in the palaces of Herod. Uh, maybe they, they thought that perhaps it was Herod's child that was going to be the Messiah. Who knows? But the thing is this, that they came to a poor, anonymous village home in Bethlehem. Maybe not the stable, but certainly a place of no great significance. And it must have been quite bizarre for them, except that they'd been led by God to, into this surprising situation. But this wasn't a place where you'd expect to find the Son of God, the glorious Messiah. Just like Calvary, where Jesus ended his life. Um, we know from Luke that Jesus started his life in a filthy, well, we're assuming it was a dirty manger, uh, feeding trough, perhaps had been swept of, of, of some of the, uh, the stuff on it, but it wouldn't have been terribly a clean place. And certainly a stable, a place where the, the animals ate was not a particularly uh, salubrious place in which the king of glory would be found. But that was like where Jesus ended his life, on Calvary. Calvary was a rocky outcrop just outside Jerusalem where criminals were regularly tortured to death. Uh, it was a place of blood. It was a place of suffering. It was a place of misery. It was a place, place of rejection. It was a place where the scum of the world were punished. And here, Jesus, the King of glory, was crucified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, this is why we love the Lord so much. Because he, he came into this world to die that kind of life, that kind of death, live that kind of life and died that kind of death. This is why, you know, the, the Bible encourages us to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual service of worship. Now, may the, this Christmas story, may this, the, uh, the events of, of uh, the birth of Jesus, which anticipate the life that he lived and the death he died, uh, may this spur us on to offer ourselves this morning to him as our Lord and as our Saviour. And if you do wish to come to faith for the first time, let me just say this. The Bible says you need to do the following things. Firstly, confess your sins to him. You need to be honest about the things that are wrong in your life. Secondly, ask the Lord to help you to remove these things from you when you, when you go on as a Christian. And thirdly, make sure that you trust Jesus. You trust that he died for you and that his death made it possible for all of his righteousness and goodness to be transferred to you. You know, when, once you've received Christ into your life, it's just as if you'd never sinned in the whole of your life. That's what the Bible says. You're justified, just as if you'd never sinned. And you can walk free, free from the devil, free from the world, free from the old life. And uh, you can follow him. So... Confess your sins, trust in him, and then be baptized. That is, tell other people. Confess with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord. Tell your friends, tell your family. Tell people uh, that you now have trusted Jesus and seek to live for him from this day onwards. Now let's just pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we do thank you for your amazing love and kindness you showed to the world on, the, on those days when Jesus came into this world. 
Thank you, Lord, you displayed your glory. You displayed the fact that um, your, your love is upon all men, particularly the poor, particularly the sinful, particularly the wretched. And, Lord, that you showered grace upon them. And, Lord, we ask you to help us to trust you and help us to be filled with joy this Christmas time that we know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. We ask it in his name. Amen.